Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is Lawyer X, Episode 3. With the gangland murderers in jail or dead, Nicola Gobbo focused her informing on the syndicates that ran Melbourne's illicit drug supply. Gobbo's clients were involved in major transnational shipments of cocaine, ecstasy and the precursor chemicals for manufacturing amphetamines. She ruthlessly infiltrated their operations. It was dangerous work, but not very difficult. Her handlers noted their source behaved more like one of the gang than a lawyer would. She met her associates in public places such as restaurants, where the presence of a solicitor could legitimise the meeting to any observer, especially police. She gave these brazen gangsters cover to discuss and plan their criminal activity. They treated her like a trusted insider. Nicola Gobbo was playing a deadly game. In this episode, we'll meet the drug lords she betrayed. During 2005, I became aware of high-level drug trafficking, money laundering, witness tampering, firearm offences and a variety of other serious criminal activity by virtue of the contact I had with certain clients and their crews and supporters. This is a letter Gobbo wrote to a senior police officer in June 2015. It's read by an actor. I also watched as police either totally failed to investigate much of this offending or failed in being able to obtain evidence to be able to arrest and charge offenders. By September 2005, certain events and circumstances led to me formally starting work as registered informer 3838. My breaking point came when I was threatened by Tony Mockbell to ensure that a first-time offender who was operating pill presses and manufacturing tens of thousands of MDMA pills for him kept his mouth shut and pleaded guilty after he was arrested. This kind of scenario had happened numerous times in circumstances in which I was dealing with high-level drug syndicates. Here was Mockbell's plan to stay free in action. The underlings were expendable and would do Tony's jail time for him. He controlled which lawyers represented them and how they would plead. Gobbo was being paid handsomely to facilitate these sleazy deals. Then she turned on him and hit him where it hurt. She knew how money flowed in the Mockbell empire. In September 2005... Gobbo identified Mockbell's childhood friend and South Yarra boutique owner, Emidio Navaroli, as his money man. She told police that Navaroli had been hiding money for the drug boss. Mockbell's assets had been frozen back in 2001. In 1995, he was worth just $128,000, including a pizza shop. Six years later, he had amassed a $15 million fortune. In 2006, even after his assets were frozen, Mockbell's operations had an estimated turnover of $400 million, all while on bail for cocaine importation. In March 2006, Mockbell was under siege. The police were also preparing to charge him with two underworld murders. So he skipped the country in an epic escape that involved being concealed in a yacht bound for Greece. His business still continued in his absence and Gobbo remained as his lawyer. 
despite growing suspicion, as Gobbo's handler noted in his diary. 7th of May, 06, 14, 13 hours. Heard from Eddie Ratty that Tony Mockbell has offered any amount of money to kill... The target of the contract was believed to be Mick Gatto, who was also Gobbo's client. She was walking the line between these deadly enemies. In 2004, Gatto had killed Andrew Venyaman, but was acquitted on the grounds of self-defence. Mockbell had sworn he would avenge his fallen hitman. Gobbo would pass back and forth through the battle lines. One night she was at dinner with Gatto to celebrate the anniversary of the slaying of Venyaman. The next, she's at a meeting with the Mockbell clan. It's amazing she pulled this off. Here are the handler's notes. He calls Gobbo HS for human source. 2nd of May, 06, 16.45 hours. Horty Mockbell. Tony Mockbell's brother. Grabs HS by the throat and accuses her of being an informer. 12 May, 06, 809 hours. On leaving, Horty tried to kiss HS, but HS believed that he was also trying to pat her down. For listening devices. 11th of July, at meeting, Horty tries to get physically amorous with HS, which HS refused and says walk down a laneway and vomited. 23 July, 06, advises HS that a solicitor and Roberta Williams are both saying that HS is a dog and should be knocked. Horty divulged how to launder money, therefore still trusts HS to some degree. 06 March 07. HS attends dinner. Horty present. HS reports that she is once again the flavour of the month and is being treated like nothing has happened. Gobbo also informed on another syndicate in this period, the Griffith-based group led by Pasquale Barbaro, who was said to be aligned with the Calabrian Mafia. One of the key contacts was Rob Karam, a client of Gobbo who was already facing drugs charges. Karam had frustrated police for years, importing drugs into Australia using a freight forwarding business as a cover. He had been referred to Gobbo by a senior local mafia figure, and as he wrote to a friend, read here by an actor, he felt he had the best counsel in town. As you know, you need the best people acting for you, not the idiots who did so in the past. It's incredible what a difference a good lawyer makes. If you owned a Ferrari, would you take it to a Nissan mechanic for a service? Yet they are both recognised as mechanics. That's how big the margin is between good and bad lawyers. Rob Karam was an inmate of Barwon Jail when he wrote this letter to a friend in March 2013. Karam did not know that his good lawyer, Nicola Gobbo, had been informing on him for seven years. Twelve months later, he would read about it in a newspaper when the Lawyer X story broke. Karam realised that she was the reason he was doing 35 years for drug trafficking. He dropped his guard in the face of his lawyer's beguiling charms. She had also convinced him to become an informer against some very heavy people. This relationship was strong because Gobbo would do things for Karam others would not. 12 January 06. She says she will organise a place for Rob Karam in the city to meet women during the day. She suspects it will also be used for clandestine meetings about crime. As Gobbo turned on the full client service, Karam began to relax. She relayed detailed information about his drug business to her handlers. 
18 January 06. Karam admits having thousands of kilos of MDMA and asking HS to be put in touch with people to get rid of it from him. HS says he has never previously spoken so openly to HS, read these types of things. HS's opinion is that Karam is telling the truth and he's in possession of extremely large amounts of powder. Karam said he had access to hundreds of thousands of kilos and that it was worth $100,000 per kilogram and that 7,000 to 11,000 pills can be made from one kilo of powder. Karam was also doing business with the Mockbell clan. 28th of July 06. Horty is involved with Rob Karam, re a container of tobacco. Karam told HS this. Karam and Horty spoke at HS office. Karam told HS that Horty was desperate for money, wants to steer clear of him. Horty would make between 500000 and 700000 from the container of tobacco for his share. Karam would make 500000 split three ways for his part in it. Karam was on bail awaiting trial over what was then a world record seizure of ecstasy, 1.2 tonnes in 2005. In late 2006, Karam began talking of a much bigger deal, 4.4 tonnes from the Mafia in Calabria. The shipment of ecstasy was to arrive in Melbourne on June 28, 2007, aboard a freighter named the MV Monica. The drugs were concealed inside tins of tomatoes. Authorities had no clue the shipment was coming until Gobbo supplied the freight documents. Three weeks before the arrival of the MV Monica, Gobbo was having coffee with Karam before court. He handed her the documents and asked her to hold onto them for him. The handlers knew Gobbo was at times given to flamboyant exaggeration, but this was information that came with documents as Gobbo told police in audio played to the Royal Commission. An actor is reading from a transcript. I said, what's this in relation to? Good quality importation? Is it ecstasy? Cocaine? It's not tobacco, is it? He goes, bit of this, bit of that. Then at lunchtime, see, lucky I photocopied them, because at lunchtime, we're talking around the corner. He goes, I need to come and get those documents. So he came down to my office with his brother, and his brother took the documents away. The freight documents were written in Italian and Gobbo translated for police. The container was coming from Italy via Singapore to Melbourne. Karam had said to me it was the biggest ever import they've done. Gobbo claimed to her handlers that she was trusted by Karam and the other drug lords. It's not because I'm sleeping with anyone, though I admit there's a bit of cockteasing going on, but because they got used to me being around. The container was intercepted by federal police on the tip-off. But there were no arrests for more than a year as the cops assembled their briefs against the gang members. In July 2007, the crooks stayed in city apartments and exchanged calls and text messages that showed their growing concern about the fate of the container. By July 3, listing devices planted by police showed that they realised the container had probably been intercepted. Barbaro was terrified that the Calabrian suppliers would think he'd stolen the drugs. So he contacted a reporter, giving details of the shipment in a ham-fisted and unsuccessful plan to get the seizure publicised. Here an actor reads Barbro's message to the reporter. Mate, I have info on a drug shipment gone wrong. Will you chase it up as I'm afraid to tell police of fear they might be involved? The container number is MEDU1250218 and it came in on the ship Monica two months ago and it's 15 million ecstasy tabs in tomato tins. Why isn't it out? It's the biggest in history. Meanwhile, everyone began turning their attention to Rob Karam. 
This included the Calabrian's enforcer, a hitman known as Tall John, who was based in Singapore. He travelled to Melbourne to see if the gang was telling the truth about the missing shipment. As Karam recalled in a letter to Barbaro in January 2013, an actor is reading. 26 Jan 13. Everything was so up shit creek. No one knew what was going on. I also had tall John going berserk from the first time I met him at St Kilda at the Stoke House when he wanted my driver's licence and was accusing me of taking his things and wanting to film his death on video, etc. Seriously, I couldn't keep up. Everyone wanted to kill me. Fuck me. Bash me. Everyone went mad on me and I was the only one you all should have listened to. Well, at least everyone now knows that nothing was ever stolen from anyone. Fat lot of good that did me. Look where I am. 23 and a half hour lockdown and for fuck knows how long. 28th January 13. Also, there is no doubt that your life was on the line, as Tall John put it. You were lucky to be alive after they came here to kill you both and hair. I recall everything that he said and I felt like these guys are fucking insane. Anyway, he didn't go through with killing you as he worked out that you hadn't done anything wrong. But whilst he was convinced the OS people weren't... Mafia figures in Calabria. ...and were demanding payment. He talked about how he came here with snipers who were flown in from OS to do the job and how close you came to death. So he gave you the opportunity to satisfy the OS people with what he brought down from Sydney. That was the only available option as it was a desperate time and a life-or-death situation. The hitman, Tall John, vouched for the hapless Aussie criminals and saved their lives. But they were now $10 million in the red. Barbaro went to Italy several times to organise another shipment of ecstasy at a ridiculously inflated cost. The Calabrians had them over a barrel. The end for the Tomato Tins conspirators came in July 2008, when Barbaro and his associates tried to import 100 kilos of cocaine hidden in a container of Colombian coffee beans. The drugs had cost Barbaro just $600,000, but he'd make $40 million on the deal, enough to pay back the Calabrians and still be ahead on the ill-fated Tomato Tins. Until Karam blabbed to Gobbo. Karam claimed to be involved in the deal, selling the coke to bikies in South Australia. 04 January 08 says he's been consulted about an importation for them from Colombians and cocaine. They will have to pay $5,000 US per kilo to Colombians, $1 billion. He will make a couple of million, they agreed, and they will pay. Therefore, reason returning to South Australia on Tuesday. Unfortunately, once more, customs officials swooped after a tip-off and detected the drugs. Less than a fortnight later, police scooped up syndicate members from properties across southeastern Australia. Gobbo wasn't finished with Karam yet. According to Karam, Gobbo encouraged him to collect a debt owed by a Hong Kong crook named China Eddie. Eddie suggested Karam help him with a plan to ship 26 tonnes of chemicals from Mexico. It was enough to make drugs worth $13 billion on the street. Unfortunately, Chinese Eddie was also an undercover officer working with Australian Federal Police. An actor reads from Karam's version of events. As soon as I was charged, Lawyer X came to see me at the custody centre. She told me about the charges, that China Eddie was a police officer and said that she would help me with the charges. Gobbo continued to represent Karam, advising him to plead guilty to everything and rat on his mates, as Karam said in a statement. I asked her what to do. She said to me that I should tell them everything that I knew. 
I was surprised by the advice and was worried about the implications. However, because it came from my lawyer and a lawyer who clearly understood my circumstances and had been there for me time and time again, I accepted it. So I told them everything. At the conclusion of the interview, I was released without charge. Gobbo then worked with the police to create a witness statement that would bring everyone down. I was anxious that it implicated other people because it explained the circumstances and reasons for the hostility towards Barbaro. At some stage, she produced a type statement and asked me to sign it. However, in the end, I refused to sign it. I think it would have been a fairly untenable position he found himself in. It's a simple philosophy in the prison system. Many people, for their own particular selfish reasons, are quick to point the finger at someone. Until there is paperwork stating clearly that someone has done the wrong thing by someone, and only after you have been able to confirm that that paperwork is bona fide. And we know now that with the gobble and the piranha era, there's a lot of questions to be answered in relation to what paperwork was legitimate. And Gobbo had engineered all of this. This is where Gobbo and Victoria Police's excuses fail to pass muster. It's one thing to say the information that she obtained did not have legal privilege as it was obtained in informal circumstances. But then Gobbo was acting for the accused once they were charged, while working with the police to make sure they were locked up. It was a diabolical conflict of interest and her handlers knew it from the earliest days of this Faustian pact. More than 30 members of this syndicate were convicted in the Tomato Tins case and sentenced to a total of nearly 300 years jail. And Gobbo was the key informer in all of this. Karam got one of the heaviest sentences of them all. I was convicted on the 17th of November 2014. I was sentenced to 37 years with 25 years non-parole. After the conviction, Lawyer X continued to provide legal advice to me by phone and in writing about my conviction. In 2014, the Herald Sun newspaper began running stories about the informer Lawyer X and finally the penny dropped for Karam that he had been the victim of an epic double cross. All the information Gobbo gave to her handlers might have been obtained illegally. In a legal sense, it might be fruit from a poison tree. Karam is now hoping to walk free because of this foolhardy plan with Gobbo. An actor reads from his plea for mercy. I believe I have not received a fair trial because the person whom I engaged to provide legal advice throughout the process of investigation and during the pre-trial and trial processes was a registered informer who had divided loyalties and did not give me advice in accordance with my best interests. Information and evidence used in trials against me was obtained from me by duplicitous conduct at various stages of the investigative process, which duplicity involved both loyalty and Victoria Police. Needless to say, Gobbo appears to be a shadow of her former self as she wrote to a senior police officer in 2015. I've struggled to cope with the fact that my reputation has been completely destroyed and my ability to obtain employment within the legal profession or even utilising my four degrees and experience is hopeless. A Google search for my name is quite literally sickening to me, let alone Googling Lawyer X scandal. I also struggled to deal with the fact that any of this has happened, given all the assurances I was given by police that my assistance would never be a matter of public knowledge. I've been forced to live day to day with a degree of hypervigilance and fear as to what will come out next and what impact it will have on my life. 
The impact on Gobbo's health as she navigated this treacherous path of police informer comes through in the notes of her handler. In 2004, she suffered a stroke and that signalled the start of her physical decline. Managing her moods and anxiety was a delicate and time-consuming task. An actor is reading from the handler's notes. 23rd of March 2006. Advised not to stay out all night as human source constantly complaining of exhaustion and overwork. 10th of April 2006. Feeling run down. Lump in breast, probably not significant. 26th of September 2006. Human source woke up this morning with entire left side of face paralysed, has contacted local doctor pending contact by neurosurgeon. Human source is fearful that it's related to previous stroke. 13th of October 2006, HS has seen specialists regarding a lump in neck. HS states is unable to swallow and is concerned with the pain. 7th of November 2006, HS is having trouble sleeping and dealing with her status as a human source. 13th of March 2007, general discussion regarding HS's thoughts of being compromised as a human source. Stress, re-arrest and subsequent actions. Victoria Police organised counselling for Gobbo, lest their glittering prize unravel before their eyes. This was a critical moment. Her most important informing would be on show as various murderers and drug dealers she'd informed on went on trial in that year. An actor is reading from the notes. 17th of January 2008. Mentioned thoughts of suicide. Has no enthusiasm for life. Has withdrawn from society. Has no social life. Therefore feels isolated. Therefore feels lonely, which is depressing. Handler discussed directly use of words suicide and seriousness of same. HS states has no drive, energy, enthusiasm for anything. Is not going to do anything dramatic. Is just a bit depressed. 21st of November 2008. Doctor advised human source to stop taking new medication immediately. Antidepressants medication. Obviously had extreme side effect on human source, including hot and cold flushes. Can't sleep. Feels continuously under pressure. Handler comment. Never heard human source like this before. Extremely emotional and depressed. Says wants to give up being a barrister, but also concerned for future job prospects and financial security. One has to question why Nicola Gobbo continued informing when the personal cost was so high. She could have quit at any moment. There was nothing the police could do to stop her from walking, short of charging her with a conspiracy over her knowledge of criminal activities. But they weren't about to do that. She was far too valuable. She'd helped police dismantle two major drug syndicates, which included the seizure of $80 million worth of assets. And she'd received nothing in return, except the warm glow of civic pride. It's difficult to muster much sympathy for Gobbo's clients. If they weren't guilty of these crimes, they were probably guilty of others. It could be argued that Gobbo did the public a favour by getting them off the streets. But what if the targets of her informing were innocent? In the next episode, we'll examine one such case where it's argued Gobbo's involvement derailed a murder investigation and helped two killers go free. You've got the highest profile and most expensive investigation ever undertaken by Victoria Police that's sitting there and it's the elephant in the room. And it's never going to go away until it's resolved. From a week out from the initial murder, this was solvable. This is the biggest 
miscarriage of justice in this whole scenario, that a bloke was murdered on his way to court and then they've manipulated the whole investigation to suit a number of agendas. Lawyer X is a real crime production, written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Listener.